0: Good evening, friends. <clears throat> As Kevin said, tonight we're starting a new sermon series on Hezekiah and Josiah. We're going to be kind of diving in the deep end of the Old Testament and the divided monarchy. And I wouldn't blame you if you wondered, why are we doing that? <clears throat> That's kind of a, a little bit more obscure. There's all those kings. We might feel like a schoolboy in England who has to memorize all the kings of England and What you can remember is there's a lot of them and some of them weren't very good, but I think we can do better than that. So let me suggest some good reasons why this is a good thing we're doing, and some of these reasons will also correspond with some points that I'll make later in the sermon. As I just alluded, I think we can all grow in our familiarity with and our understanding of the Old Testament maybe especially the divided monarchy with almost 40 kings in the north and south, there are some really important lessons to learn from them. As Kevin mentioned, Hezekiah and Josiah, we'll look at Hezekiah tonight. These are the very best of the kings of Judah, the best of the kings in the divided monarchy, and they give us good examples of what wholehearted devotion to God looks like. About Hezekiah, it says, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. According to all that David, his father, had done, he trusted in the Lord, his God. About Josiah, it said, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the way of David, his father, and he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. Those are exemplary summaries. Third, I think Although these kings are exemplary, as we'll see throughout this series, they're not perfect. And I think there's a lesson here, too, about how God views us, how he views his imperfect people, whom he uses sometimes very powerfully for the advancement of his kingdom, despite their flaws and failures. And I think we can all be encouraged by that. And finally, Hezekiah and Josiah ultimately point us beyond themselves to the glory of of the true king, the Messiah, Jesus, and his coming glorious reign. And this is what Paul calls our blessed hope. So before we jump in, let's just pause right now and pray for God's help as we come to his word. Father, it is so good to come together in unity, to worship, and to hear your word. It's even better to come together and to have communion with you You who are seated on your throne, high and lifted up, as we heard this morning. Lord, you have made a way through the blood of your son, Jesus. We are so thankful. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable to you, our great rock and our redeemer, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So we're going to jump in. We're going to get to the passage in a few minutes. Um, As we jump into the deep end, so to speak, into the divided monarchy, uh, I thought it's probably going to be helpful for me, for you, to do a little bit of a history review, kind of a history of the Old Testament 101. I think for many of us, when we think about these people and events, it's kind of like a fairy tale that happened long ago and far away. And it's not that we don't believe that they're real events, we just may not have a great template for when and where and how and so on. So we're going to start with just kind of an overview of the whole testament, then I'll just say a couple things about the context of Hezekiah, what was going on when he came on the scene, and then we will look uh, specifically at 2 Kings 18. So I'm going to make this brief, Uh, not everybody likes history lessons, but I want us at least to have kind of a framework to understand where we are in the Old Testament. So we're going to begin, not with creation, but when God actually sets in motion his plan of salvation. And that happens in Genesis 12 with the call of Abram, or Abraham as we know him better. That happened about 2000 B.C. So that's an important date. And just think, 2000 B.C., then... Jesus, 2,000 years later, and then us 2,000 years after that. So it's a nice little breakdown. 2,000, okay. Jesus is 0, 0,000, and then we're 2,000 A.D. So God calls Abraham, and then his, next, his son becomes the next patriarch, Isaac, and then Jacob becomes the next patriarch. And, of course, Jacob had 12 sons who become the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, one of those sons, are several chapters devoted to him, in the book of Genesis, and that's his 11th son, Joseph. Joseph, you remember, was sold as a slave into Egypt by his jealous brothers and rises to become the second most powerful person in the world under Pharaoh. Israel is saved from famine, and the whole clan moves down to Egypt where they spend about 430 years. So that leads us to the next major event, which would be Moses and the Exodus. Now, the date for this is somewhat disputed, but I think about 1450 B.C. is a good date for Moses and the Exodus. God raises up Moses. He leads Israel out of Egypt and into the wilderness. They spend about 40 years in the desert. And then Joshua, Moses' successor, leads them to conquer the Promised Land, and that's around 1400 B.C. And then after Joshua dies... There's this period of the judges, which is described this way. There was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes, which could be written about us today, right? So there's, this, there's about 300 to 350 years of, of judges, several men raised up to be kind of leaders and military leaders, and that is about 1375 to 1050, Samuel is the last judge, and then he anoints the first king, Saul. And then we have the period of the united monarchy. Israel is one nation with one king. There's three monarchs in this time, Saul, David, and Solomon. And here's our next really big date, okay? Abraham, 2,000. David's about 1,000. So now we've divided it a little further. 2,000, Abraham, 1,000, David... And then about a thousand years later, Jesus. So the the united monarchy is between about 1050 and 930 BC. At the end of that time, at the end of Solomon's reign, his increasing apostasy and idolatry and disobedience causes God to divide the kingdom in two as an act of judgment. Israel will be the northern kingdom. They have ten tribes. Judah is the southern kingdom, with two tribes. The divided monarchy takes from about 931 to 586 B.C. Israel, the northern kingdom, the capital is in Samaria. They have about 19 kings, which range from not very good to downright terrible. <clears throat> the two worst are Jeroboam and Rehoboam. I'm sorry, Jeroboam and Ahab. Jeroboam being the first king of Israel. Because of their increasing wickedness, God raises up Assyria, and Assyria conquers the northern kingdom in 722 B.C. Judah, the southern kingdom, the capital is in Jerusalem, they have about 20 kings, and the range of goodness and badness is a little greater. There are two exemplary kings, the ones we're going to be looking at, Hezekiah and Josiah, There's several what we could call pretty good kings. They followed God, but it always has this phrase in their summary. But the high places were not removed. Now, the high places was where Israel engaged in pagan worship. So what it means is several of these kings, maybe five or six of them, sort of followed God pretty much, but were not aggressive in rooting out sin. The rest of the kings of Judah were bad. And ironically, Hezekiah's son is the worst. His name is Manasseh. Because of their increasing wickedness, God raises up Babylon. And they destroy Jerusalem and the temple and take many of the Israelites into captivity in Babylon in 586. So, if you want the simplified version, Abraham 2000, David 1000... Good to remember the fall of Israel in 722 and the fall of Judah in 586. So that's kind of the overview. What's going on around the time Hezekiah comes to power? He becomes the outright sole ruler of Judah in about 715, but he had already served probably as co-regent with his father Ahaz for some years. So that means that Hezekiah was probably a co-ruler of Judah during the time when the northern king was destroyed. So Hezekiah was very aware of the corruption and rebellion in the north that caused the Lord to bring judgment and destruction, and his own father Ahaz was not a good king. So Hezekiah has a bad father and a bad son. Make of that what you will. His own father Ahaz had led Judah into the same evil practices of Israel. It says in 2 Kings 17, Judah also did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs that Israel had introduced. So there's covenant-breaking rebellion and disobedience all around Hezekiah, both in the northern kingdom and in the southern kingdom. And this pervasive spiritual darkness has about, been about 150 years in coming. But as I said, it's actually worse than Hezekiah knows because his own son is going to be the worst of the kings of Judah. So Hezekiah stands in between an evil past, is living in an evil future, present rather, and there's going to be an evil future. This makes his righteous and successful reign all the more striking. So let's take a look now at 2 Kings chapter 18. We're going to read verses 1 through 12. And we're going to look at this summary of a king who literally bursts on the scene like a second David. He fears God, and he brings great blessing to God's people. So 2 Kings 18. In the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. <clears throat> he was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the Lord, eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him. Wherever he went out, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. He struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from watchtower to fortified city. In the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. And at the end of these three years, he took it. In the sixth year of Hezekiah, which was the ninth year of Hosea, king of Israel, Samaria, the capital, was taken. The king of Assyria carried the Israelites away to Assyria and put them in Hala and in the Habor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes because they did not obey the voice of the Lord, their God, but transgressed his covenant, even all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded. They neither listened nor obeyed. Now, as we consider these 12 verses, you notice there's two paragraphs with two very different storylines. The first eight verses are a glowing summary Hezekiah's godly character and his stunning achievements. It's a remarkable portrait of a man, a king, fully devoted to God. Now, what we would expect in verse 9 is the further exploits of Hezekiah or a more detailed uh, description of what he did. But we have this paragraph, verses 9 through 12, which kind of interrupts that narrative. It will begin again in verse 13 and recounts, the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, the whole of chapter 17, right before where we started, is a long version of the fall of Israel. And then you have Hezekiah, this bright, shining summary, and then you have a short version. So why are we reading about the fall of Israel again? I think the reason is because the writer of Kings wants to highlight Hezekiah's positive story by sandwiching it in between the longer and shorter versions of God's judgment on Israel. He wants this story that we're going to look at tonight to really shine out. And so you put it against a dark background. And he may also be ominously hinting at the coming judgment that's going to come on Judah as well. So the story of Hezekiah is the story of an unexpected revival, an undeserved display of God's mercy, and a prophetic promise of the triumph of God's coming Messiah. So that's our overview. Now, we're going to go through verses 1 through 8, pretty much line by line. We're going to look at this description of Hezekiah's character. And along the way, I'm going to make some applications by asking you some questions. You're not going to have time to really think about it much now, but if you're taking notes, it might be good to just jot down the questions. So the application, some of the application will come as we proceed through the sermon. So some descriptions of Hezekiah. First thing it says is, And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father David has done. Now David, and he was part of the United Monarchy, the second king, He's the gold standard that everyone is compared to for godliness. So Hezekiah keeps covenant with God and also follows the example of David, the gold standard of a godly king. Now to contrast that with some of the other kings of Judah, here's what it says about some of the other kings. So you can just get this idea of how Hezekiah is different. Jehoram walked in the ways of of the kings of Israel that's bad Amaziah or Ahaziah walked in the ways of the house of Ahab that's really bad because Ahab's like the worst of the bad kings in Israel Amaziah did was right what was right in the eyes of the Lord but not like David his father notice that's different from what it says about Hezekiah Azariah and Jotham two kings father and son did what was right according to all that his father had done. So these two kings lived up to the kind of standard of their fathers. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away. So again, that's pretty good, maybe a little better than pretty good. And then Ahaz, Hezekiah's father, listen to this. Ahaz did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He even burned his son as an offering. That's over-the-top bad. So you see how Hezekiah's summary of his life stands out against all these other kings. Hezekiah served God wholeheartedly by following the highest example of godliness and devotion that he knew, which was David. So here's a question for you. Question to think about. Who are your examples Of godliness and devotion. Who do you look up to? Who do you think are godly models to follow? Second thing it says about Hezekiah he removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. This is meant to show not pretty good devotion, but radical devotion to God. He not only followed God in a general way. He exposed and destroyed the heart of pagan worship in Israel, even though it would have been very unpopular. So here's another question. What do you see as the heart of paganism today? What are the crucial spiritual and cultural issues? And where do you line up? Third, this kind of cryptic, mysterious little sentence He broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. We might be thinking, what's that about? Well, you remember back in the book of Numbers, Moses is leading Israel through the desert, and they do what they often did. They grumbled and complained, and God sent fiery snakes to bite them, and they got sick, and some of them died. They cried out to the Lord, and the Lord in his mercy told Moses, make a Make a bronze serpent, kind of a symbol or replica of these fiery snakes. Put it on a pole and lift it up. And whoever looks to that bronze serpent will live. And they did. So the bronze serpent becomes a symbol of God's mercy and power. But they made an idol out of it. And increasingly, it says they actually made offerings to it. And it's a reminder to us that good things can become idols. It's possible to idolize spiritual experiences we've had. It's possible to idolize people, good people, whom God has used in our life. Or to idolize beloved traditions. So here's another application question to think about. Has anything or anyone or any gift of God, become a God substitute in your life. The next thing it says is he trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. This seems to be the heart of Hezekiah, his trust in the Lord. There's a crisis with Assyria, in Hezekiah's life. And it seems that Hezekiah was tempted to form a treaty with Egypt, which was another powerful country, in order to ward off Assyria. So he was tempted to trust in Egypt and not in the Lord, but he refused to rely on Egypt, and he chose to rely on God. It says he trusted in God. There's no one like him. Here's another question. When things get hard, or scary, or difficult, who do you trust? Where do you run to first? Finally, it says, Hezekiah held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him. Some of the kings of Judah, like Joash and Amaziah, it says in their summaries of their reign They did what was right in their youth, but did evil later in life. But Hezekiah persevered in clinging to the Lord and following him. This summary is a picture of wholehearted devotion, and it's meant for our instruction. So that's one takeaway from the book of Hezekiah. What what does wholehearted devotion look like? A second point from this Summary of Hezekiah is, it shows that sometimes God sends his light and his salvation into the very darkest and least hopeful times. That's encouraging too. Uh, Kevin again mentioned a commentator this morning, Dale Ralph Davis, as some of us really like, and he has a commentary on 2 Kings and a chapter on Hezekiah, and the chapter title is Fresh Air, Dark Days. Fresh air, dark days. And here's what Dale Ralph Davis writes about Hezekiah's reign. So David reigns again. It was almost too much to hope for. Is this not typical of God's way with his kingdom and people, either from enemies without or danger within? The church sometimes looks like there is nothing that can stop its extinction. And then God sends a recovery a recovery time, one of those Hezekiah interludes, God's relief surprises us and we can only be grateful. And I'm sure we can all see times like that in our own lives. So why not take some time later this week to think back and call to mind some of those Hezekiah interludes in your own life, Hezekiah recoveries. Maybe it was for you or someone you love, a recovery from serious illness. Or maybe reconciliation in a broken relationship. Or maybe just some very clear answer to prayer in a time of desperation. Think about those, and be grateful, and be hopeful. And why not join Pastor Jason in what he's always calling us to, to pray for revival. Pray for revival in our church, at Michigan State, throughout mid-Michigan, across the USA, and across the world. Third takeaway from Hezekiah's life. Hezekiah's glowing report shows how God views his imperfect saints in Christ. Verses 1 through 8 describe a blameless, devoted, radically committed, totally successful man of God? Really? No flaws? No fears? No failures? I confess if that were true, that would be a hard sermon for me to preach. And I think it would be hard for us to hear because we might say, well, good for you, Hezekiah. God really blessed you, but it ain't me, babe. Doesn't doesn't resonate with my life. But here's the thing. If you read the whole story of Hezekiah, and I don't want to steal the thunder of people who are going to be preaching after me, but the whole story is in 2 Kings 18 through 20, and then the companion verses in 2 Chronicles 29 through 32, you will see this that while Hezekiah did show all of these exemplary qualities and successes, it was a true, the things that it says in those eight verses are all true, but he was far from perfect. Here are some things it says if you read ahead. And again, my, my, my point here is not to poke holes in his life, but just the word of God tells us the whole truth. Although Hezekiah eventually rebelled against Assyria in a very, very dangerous time, at first he fearfully capitulated to the king of Assyria. And he foolishly gave him all the precious things of the Lord that were in the temple and in the king's treasury. And this later brought great trouble. When Hezekiah was probably in midlife, he got very, very sick. And he cried out to God because God told him, get your, get your affairs in order, you're going to die. And Hezekiah cried out to him, and God sent Isaiah the prophet back to him and said, God has promised to heal you. But Hezekiah demanded a sign from the Lord that what he promised was actually going to come true. At the end of his life, because of some things that weren't exemplary, God told Hezekiah there's going to be in the coming generation or two, there's going to be some very hard things that are consequences. And Hezekiah seemed to show kind of an indifference about what was going to happen in the future as a consequence of his failures, as long as, and this is a quote, there will be peace and security in my day. And then finally, it says that when Hezekiah was healed of this sickness, he responded with pride. So how, what are we to make of this? What are we to make of this perfect report of an imperfect man? Why, her, why are his failures not included in the summary of his life? And I think this is a wonder and a glory. Now I confess that my explanation of what I just said is more, is, is rather less than a specifically stated biblical truth and more of a gospel-related biblical instinct. But I still think it's true, and I'm going to give you some, some scriptures. They don't, they don't prove it, but I think they help me lean in the direction of what I'm going to say. Uh, but I'm going to let you judge for yourself. So I believe that Hezekiah's perfect report is ultimately related to the fact that all of God's saints are seen by God as perfect in Christ through his imputed righteousness. Now here are some verses from the gospel from the New Testament that caused me to lean in that direction, that explanation. Hebrews 10:14. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. We are seen as perfect while we're still imperfect, being perfected. Romans 4, 6 through 8. David also speaks of the blessing of the man to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sins. So God doesn't count our sin toward us, but counts Christ's righteousness toward us. Hebrews 12, which is a quote from Jeremiah 31. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Part of the glory of the new covenant is that God forgets our sins. Now, Hezekiah wasn't living at the time of the new covenant. But that covenant shines its light backwards on the Old Testament saints as well. Let me give you two other examples of men who were flawed and yet receive a really good report in the New Testament. Two Old Testament men, David. David remembers the gold standard that you're compared to for godliness. But we know David was rather flawed. At one time he committed two capital offenses. He could have been executed twice for adultery and murder. He sinned greatly including adultery and murder. But when his life is summarized in Acts 13:22, God says about David, I have found in David the son of Jesse a man after my heart who will do all my will. No mention of his heinous crimes. Or Abraham. Abraham is the father of faith, the man of faith. And he was first given a promise in Genesis 12 that he would be the father of many nations. And then in Genesis 15 he would have descendants as many as there are stars in the sky. But Abraham and Sarah had to wait 25 years for the first part of that promise to come with the birth of Isaac. So, how did he do as a man of faith? Well, we know that his faith was inconsistent and a bit wobbly because he and Sarah tried to fulfill the promise themselves because God was taking his time. And so Hagar was given to Abraham and they had Ishmael. It was an act of unbelief. And it caused trouble within his offspring that is still going on today. And yet, when Paul describes Abraham in Romans four nineteen through 22, here's what he says. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. So Abraham's unbelief is forgotten, and he is held up as the model of faith. To these examples, if we went to Hebrews 11, of men who were flawed and who are given very positive reports in the New Testament, we could add Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah. Here's the point. While God is fully aware of all our flaws and failures, the final report on your life will be blameless. Because we are united to the perfect one through faith. And all our sins and failures will be forgiven and covered and forgotten. And this is stunningly good news to imperfect people like you and me. Last takeaway from Hezekiah's life. Hezekiah's godliness and glory ultimately points to the first and second coming of Jesus, the Messiah, the final king of kings, so that we might learn to glorify and enjoy him forever. So Hezekiah points beyond himself to a king who truly is perfect. And we know that Hezekiah relates to Jesus and points to his glory because Jesus himself told us that in Luke 24, 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, including 2 Kings 18, the things concerning himself. So we know that this points to Jesus because Jesus told us. We also know this because our eyes have been spiritually opened to the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. Here's how Paul said it. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Here's how Peter said it. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We have seen enough of Jesus through the word, through the spirit, through his people to capture our hearts forever. Now, if you're like me, you would would say my glimpses of his glory are intermittent and probably very weak. They're just glimpses, but enough to capture our hearts forever. I'd like to close in prayer. I'm going to use a prayer that John Piper wrote in his book, Seeing and Savoring Christ. I think it brings together some of the big points of tonight, and I think it expresses for us the yearning Of our hearts. So if you will bow with me in prayer, and after that, grace will come up and lead us in our final hymn. Let's pray. Eternal Father, our hearts leap up with gratitude that you have opened our eyes to see and know that Jesus Christ is your eternal divine Son, begotten, not made, and that you, O Father, and he, your son, our one God. We tremble even to take such glorious truths on our lips for fear of dishonoring you with withering and inadequate words. But we must speak because we must praise you. Silence would shame us, and the rocks themselves would cry out. You must be praised for who you are in the world you have made. And we must thank you because you have made us taste And see the glory of Jesus Christ, your son. Oh, to know him. Father, we long to know him. Banish from our mind low thoughts of Christ. Saturate our souls with the spirit of Christ and all his greatness. Enlarge our capacities to be satisfied in all that you are for us in him. Where flesh and blood are impotent, reveal to us the Christ and rivet our attention and our affections on the truth and beauty of your all-glorious Son. And whether, and grant us, whether rich or poor, sick or sound, we might be transformed by him and become an echo of his excellence in the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.